0: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The Big Picture Questions and the Most Interesting Research in Science.
2: Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science. And as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside The Box of Oddities.
3: I'm pretty excited that we got our first mail delivery at our new mailbox address here in Orlando.
1: And what a delivery it was. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. It included Ah. bourbon, which by the way I approve of mailing me alcohol would be fine
1: thank you so much to Josh and Colin they sent us a congratulatory box of booze and Mr. pib to mix it with which um, by the way we haven't opened the bourbon yet yeah but, but all the mr Pib is gone yeah, I ca- have consumed ca- it all she
3: motored right through it
1: yeah sorry um but uh, thank you so much it was just a sweet congratulations for starting the shallow end and I think that that's just about the sweetest
3: And that's going pretty well, too. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, We also got from Nick Tharp um, a carrot cookbook. I am so happy about this. Because, I mean, we've talked about this before. I I don't mean to sound dramatic, but carrots are the fucking best. Uh I love them. Um, I call them ground candy which is sometimes confusing uh, because there's sometimes candy on the ground and that's not what i'm talking about but uh yeah nick thought that i should have a carrot cookbook and i agree so thank you so much
3: and we have updated our new mailing address on the website but uh if you'd like to have it now here's what it is 8131 vineland avenue number 248 orlando florida 32821
1: the way I remember the box number is that it's two plus two is four, and four plus four is eight. Two, four, eight.
3: Kat has a really interesting mathematical mind. She has to pump gas so that the amount comes out in palindromes.
1: I mean, I don't have to. It's just what makes me uh, happy and not itchy.
3: <laughs> well, I'm going to try to make you happy and not itchy with a story. Yay! Here we go. Now, as most of us are aware of, and and some of us are actually living through it, the western part of the United States is going through a severe drought. It's one of historical proportions. And because of that, along with other lakes in the area, Lake Mead's water level has dropped to an unbelievably historic low. And as the water levels drop more and more, strange and unusual things have begun to appear things that have been at the bottom of the lake for decades are now re-emerging now lake mead was originally created when the hoover dam was constructed back during the uh, depression it was first flooded on september 30th 1935 and it's located it actually straddles the border of nevada and arizona just a few miles east of Las
1: Vegas. So it's a man-made lake.
3: It is. It's actually a water reservoir. And it's the largest one in the U.S. in terms of water capacity, or at least it has been. It provides water not only to the states of Nevada and Arizona, but also California and some parts of Mexico. So when you combine that with the historic drought, you can see why the water is quickly disappearing. So with water levels at an all-time low, it's drawn many treasure seekers. Treasure. As well as people who are just curious to the ever expanding shoreline of Lake Mead, artifacts from another day have began have begun to slowly reemerge from their underwater resting places. Now, many of them are fairly common things that you would expect to find. Uh, at the bottom of a lake, like thumbs, wreck- <laughs> thumbs, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not uh, wrecked pleasure boats and watercraft, like you know, like a SeaDoo that's been down there sure. for eight like, years or something, and and some boats that go back for quite a while, um, actually several decades old, and it has drawn a lot of people looking to salvage anything of value. Oh, okay. And one of the more recent objects. To emerge from the uh, shrinking reservoir is a little bit. It has. It's. It's more of an historical nature. It's a World War II boat that has long been as much as 185 feet below the surface, and now today the water has dropped so much it's halfway sticking halfway out of the lake.
1: But it's in a man-made lake that straddles. Nevada yeah and why why is it there
3: I think it might have had to do with training missions there are a lot of military bases out there in fact there's a lot of military stuff underwater there oh okay now it's the location of this shipwreck has been known for a long time it's uh, not even a mile from the Lake Mead Marina and Hemingway Harbor for years it's been a popular dive site so we did know it was there But now you don't have to put on scuba gear. You can just paddle your kayak out to it. (laughs) That's kind of (laughs) cool. I would love to do that. One of the best known historical items that is resting at the bottom of Lake Mead is a B-29 Super Fortress plane that crashed there in 1948. For decades, the crashed plane has not seen the light of day. Its whereabouts wasn't even discovered until uh, the early 2000s. But now the water has receded so much, the plane is visible for the first time since it crashed 75 years ago. The Superfortress was on a test flight in the area when it experienced some malfunctions and it caused the airmen to crash it into the lake. All five crew members survived the plane crash, but the plane quickly sank. At this point, it's still irretrievable, and it's technically still underwater, but not by much. And it won't be for long, the way things are going. Also above the waterline, for the first time in decades, this is kind of cool, it's eerie. It's a um, a cement aggregate plant that had been built and supplied all the sand and gravel used in the construction of Hoover Dam in the early 1930s. Ooh. In the 1980s, it was about 115 feet below the surface but now you can see the tops of buildings and the clarifying tank poking through the surface.
1: Wow. You love those abandoned building videos. Oh. So what about adding a new layer to it? A underwater abandoned building exploration. Yeah,
3: I would definitely definitely want to do that. In fact, <laughs> I want to go to Lake Mead because of this one particular thing that's been at the bottom of the lake for decades that's now completely uh, re-emerged. It's uh, an entire town. Oh, wow. St. Thomas is a former Mormon frontier town that was completely submerged when Lake Mead was created. It was originally settled along the Muddy River and the Virgin Rivers where they meet and quickly became a popular stopping point for travelers that were heading west. It was kind of a, an outpost, a supply post. But it was abandoned when the government took over the land while building the Hoover Dam. Throughout the 30s and 40s, as Lake Mead filled up, the town ended up about 60 feet below water. But today, with the dropping water levels, you can actually walk along the streets of that former frontier town and look at the remains of the buildings that still stand.
1: Weird. How cool is that? I can't think about flooded towns now without thinking of that movie that we watched uh, about that old lady who wouldn't leave the Tennessee town that was going to be flooded.
3: Oh, the... The Wild River. Yeah. Yeah. Old classic film from like the 60s or something.
1: Yeah. And uh, it really got me interested. I've been doing a lot of reading since then about uh, towns that have been flooded and the disproportionate number of towns that have been flooded in the U.S. that were primarily um, African American led towns. Wow. Yeah.
3: On October 24th, 1949, a U.S. Navy PBY Catalina flying boat was attempting a water landing, but the pilot did not... um, Well, actually, what he did is he put the landing gear down by mistake. Ooh. And, uh, you know, when you land on water with this type of a craft, you don't need the landing gear. But what happened was he put it down. It caused the plane, when the landing gear hit the water to flip over and burst into flames. And in this case, only one of five passengers on board survived. The wreckage of the flying boat for decades lay at the bottom of the lake. Now it's slowly re-emerging once again and can be very easily visited by divers. And then there's this, perhaps the most shocking discovery. Thumbs? Close. It was the weekend of May 1st of this year, 2022, just a couple of months ago. Boaters were out for a leisurely afternoon on the lake. They were just kind of slowly drifting around, I'm sure they're drinking their, their natty light, and enjoying the sunshine when one of them spotted a rusty barrel, which was half-submerged in the mud along the ever-expanding shoreline of Lake Mead. Being curious, they went over to investigate. The next thing they did was contact the National Park Service who then alerted Las Vegas police because what they found inside the barrel was a decomposed corpse.
1: Ooh, is it mob stuff?
3: Yep, that's what
1: they think. That makes sense.
3: As of now, the body has not been identified. Las Vegas coroner has been able to learn a few things, though. The individual was a man. He was killed with a gunshot to the head. And based on the clothing and the types of shoes he was wearing, they estimate that the murder happened between the mid-70s and early 80s. The body was put in a barrel after it was dead and then dumped at what would have been hundreds of meters off the uh, reservoir's original shoreline. Mm. And as you mentioned, investigators agree, it has all the markings of a mob hit. And certainly the mob has a history of being very active in Vegas, particularly during that time frame
1: right and
3: Vegas was less than 30 miles from Lake Mead in fact the mob museum in Vegas is posting updates to the case on its blog in hopes to in hoping to assist in perhaps solving the mystery and identifying who this uh, victim was Oh yeah it's pretty cool
1: this is a, a story with lots of twists and turns
3: the museum's vice president of exhibits and programs his name is Jeff Schum- Jeff Schumacher. He spoke with KJZZ recently and has some ideas as to who this person might be based on the time frame that they think the murder took place, cross-referencing with uh, mob hits that were not solved during that time period, people who just disappeared that were on mob hit lists. He says it's likely one of three people, each of them having a connection to the mob. The first possibility, he says, is a guy named Jay Vandermark. According to the Mob Museum blog, Vandermark was a gambling machine cheater trusted by the mob to oversee its slot machine operations at the Stardust Casino on the uh, Las Vegas Strip. However, he double-crossed them. He skimmed somewhere between 7 and $15 million worth of change Oof. from four Las Vegas casinos in the mid-'70s. And the mob certainly wanted him dead. But the rumors are that he was probably killed in Phoenix and buried in the desert outside the city of Phoenix. And the Mob Museum doubts that it's Vandermark, although the time frame matches up pretty well. Okay. The second possible candidate is a man named William Crespo. He was a drug runner with Mob Connections who turned state's evidence after getting busted for smuggling cocaine. He was scheduled to testify against a former insider from the mob-controlled casino, but never showed up to trial. Ah. Yeah. But the Mob Museum's leading candidate for the man in the barrel is a guy named Johnny Pappas.
1: Why does that name sound familiar?
3: Maybe you've heard it before in like a mob movie or documentary or something. I guess he was pretty well known in uh, Vegas as a mob operative. He was a Chicago native and a veteran Las Vegas casino boss. He owned a boat ...at Lake Mead, which puts him at the scene of the dumping grounds at the time the murder may have occurred. Ah. In fact, he was involved with the marina at Lake Mead that was also owned by the same people that owned the old mob-run Stardust Casino. Now, the common thread between all three of these men, according again to Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum website, is that they were all linked to the Argent Corporation... That was a front company for an organized crime operation that ran some of uh, Vegas's top gambling operations. Mm-hmm. It was the most powerful Las Vegas mob operation at that time. It's a different Argent. Oh. Once again from the Mob Museum blog, they think that if that theory holds true, then they have a pretty good idea as to who the likely killer was. Oh, And that person... Was one of the most notorious enforcers in mob history. The guy's name was Tony Spilotro. Tony Spilotro was, in fact, the inspiration for the fictional character Nicky Santoro, who was played by Joe Pesci in the 1995 uh, movie Casino. Uh-huh. He was considered either a suspect or the director of nearly 20 mob related murders and disappearances between. The years of 1975 and 77, like two years. And you know there's got to be more.
1: Again, this is so wild because it goes from there's a drought to now we're solving crimes.
3: (laughs) Jeff Schumacher says more bodies will surely appear as Lake Mead continues to drop. And in fact, another body was just recently discovered. A young woman named Lynette Melvin was paddleboarding with her sister, And saw what they thought was perhaps the bones of a bighorn sheep sticking out of the mud. Uh. According to the New York Times, she said, quote, It wasn't until I saw the jawbone with a silver filling that I was like, whoa, this is human.
1: Yeah, not a lot of bighorn sheep have fillings. That's true. Quadruped dentistry is severely lacking
3: nothing much is known about this new body that they have found or skeletal remains it could be another victim of foul play or it could be a drowning victim because lake mead has a history of drownings with bodies never being recovered
1: well it sounds like there's a lot of uh, sediment at the bottom yeah. and since it was a desert area, it makes a lot of sense that things would kind of settle in. Yeah,
3: exactly. In fact, there are pictures of uh, pretty large boats that have completely reemerged from the lake, and they are standing upright, like with the bow stuck into the mud and then towering like 40 feet into the air. It's really strange, indeed. Oh, I forgot to mention that Tony Spilotro guy. He met his own
1: nasty end.
3: Nasty end. He was rubbed out by the Chicago mob in 1986 and they found his body in a cornfield in Iowa.
1: Oh my goodness.
3: Or Illinois.
1: It's so funny because the term rubbed out to me doesn't sound like what apparently you mean it to mean. (laughs) That sounds more like something that would happen in an adult film.
3: (laughs) Lake Mead's water level continues to drop and has been since 1983. That's when it hit its literal high water mark. As it continues to drop, experts fear that as soon as 2023, one year from now, it could reach what's called Deadpool status. And that means that based on the altitude of the basin that it's located and the low water levels, water will stop flowing into it. This, of course, would be catastrophic. Uh, Steps are being taken to stave this off, but it's going to be a steep climb. We may never recover, at least Lake Mead. My information was gathered from the Mob Museum website, the New York Times, KJZZ, NBC News, Vintage News, and Wikipedia.
1: Wow, what a roller coaster!
2: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan Toth.
3: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
2: And now, that thing in the middle.
3: Frederick the Great was the king in Prussia from 1740 until 1772. His most significant accomplishments include his many military successes, his patronage to the arts and enlightenment, and an official statement he issued urging his subjects to drink beer in the morning instead of coffee. Receive this email, curator at oddities.com. Hey y'all, love the podcast, so on and so forth. I wanted to come to Kat's defense.
1: (gasps) Thank you. You I don't need, know what it's about, you don't but I, I love you anyway. Thank you. I need this.
3: She's referencing the story of uh, you and your dad acquiring scrap metal from the mill. She says she comes to your defense because my father also worked at a mill, and we also took scrap metal from said mill. It was all things intended to be thrown away, so that's not stealing, right? Sounds like fair game to me. Any hoozle? <laughs> thanks for all you do. Your podcast and relationship you two have brightens my day. Working at a car dealership.
1: Aw, thank you.
3: That comes from Courtney.
1: I wanted to mention something very exciting, for me at least, that happened on the Freaks group on Facebook. So uh, not long ago, you talked about the guy who was dealing with encephalitis lethargica. And he had a journal about his consciousness slide into another person in the future. It was a very strange story anyway. I talked about how there was a book that I read that reminded me of your story, and I read it years ago, and I've been trying to figure out what the GD story was, and I couldn't find it. And someone on the Freaks group said, hey, was it this one? Hades shared this book and said, I immediately thought of this book, thought I'd toss it out there. It's Spirit Walker, Messages from the Future by Hank Wesselman. And I recognized the cover immediately. I knew it was the book. I was so excited. That's a good feeling, isn't it? And so I was like, this is it! (laughs) And uh, they went on to say the author of that book was one of their professors in college. Oh, my God. So cool. So thank you so much, because that was uh, a years-long struggle for me.
3: <laughs> Nayem wrote to us and said uh, that they had their own Boo effect. They said, just before y'all share emails about Boo effects, I thought they should do a whole episode of Boo effects like these. The next thing Kat says is, we should do a whole episode of Boo <laughs> effects like these. <laughs> so now we're having Boo effects about Boo Effects. Yeah, yeah. I can say as a fan that I've finally caught up binging for months, we would love to have a bonus episode about Boo Effects. Love the show. Y'all are the only podcast that has me laughing until my stomach hurts. That's our goal, is to give you cramps.
1: Speaking of Boo Effects, Lucas wrote us Boo Effect! You guys, it happened. I finally had one. I just finished my day of research in the library for my bachelor thesis. So cool. Congratulations, by the way. As it so happened, I had to read quite a lot of history of the Sudan, which I knew nothing about until today. So I get out of the library and I put on box 445 and for the thing in the middle, Jethro talked about the Muhammad Ali Pasha, the Albanian Ottoman governor and de facto ruler of the Sudan. I literally just read about the guy 10 minutes (laughs) Wow. I love you guys. Please keep doing the shallow end. We hope to. And greetings from Munich, Germany. So thank you so much for hanging out with us in Germany, Lucas.
3: This is a comment that was made on uh, Patreon by Rick and Steve, who are charter members of the Order of
1: Freaks. Yes. They hold a special place on Patreon and in our hearts.
3: They were referencing the thing in the middle that I did involving Alexa bringing back people's voices from Mm. the dead. Rick and Steve said, then those voices from the grave can have Alexa put butt plugs on the shopping list.
1: <laughs> you already have butt plugs on your shopping list. Okay, good. <laughs> and uh, real quick, speaking of Patreon, uh, big thanks to uh, all of our patrons who have voted and uh, we've got a winner for our Philanthropic donation for this month, or I should say for last month, uh, the Gutmacher Institute uh, won out of uh, the four options, and so uh, congratulations to the Gutmacher Institute. You get ten percent of our proceeds for this month. Tell me a little bit about them. The Gutmacher Institute, advancing sexual and reproductive health worldwide through evidence-based practices.
3: And if you would like to become a member of the Order of Freaks on Patreon, you can help us decide who gets the money every month, as well as uh, get ad-free episodes. Uh, We've got another Zoom call coming up with the uh, Freaks in in the not-too-distant future, next uh, week or so. All kinds of stuff like that. You can find the
0: link at theboxofoddities.com. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms.
2: This is professional grade storytelling. Don't try this at home, kids. This is The Box of Oddities.
1: There's a marble tablet that's been kicking around in the archives at the National Museum of Scotland collection for over 130 years. It's just been there, stored away. And the inscription on this tablet was recently translated as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council-sponsored Attic inscriptions in the UK collections. It's a four-year project led by Cardiff University with the University of Durham and the University of Manchester. It's an initiative to work with collections across the UK to find, examine, edit, and translate Athenian inscriptions and make them accessible online. Oh,
3: that's amazing
1: it is and it's one of those things that i would never think of is like you know you know what we should be doing we should be going to these museums digging through their archives find athenian historical pieces translate them and make sure that they're online but absolutely i agree that that's something that should be happening
3: absolutely
1: so thank you for uh, for doing that anyway when academics first set to work on the English translation of this tablet, they thought that it might have been a cast of one held by Oxford University's Ashmolean Museum. Geez, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Peter Liddell is a professor of Greek history and epigraphy at the University of Manchester in England. He was one of the three who translated the tablet, and he's also on the editorial committee of the Attic Inscriptions Online Project.
3: Oh, my God. Wouldn't it be great if it's a centuries-old shopping list <laughs> that somebody, you know, they left the tablet in the cart at the grocery store?
1: Right. I have a friend, uh, John Emac, who collected grocery lists that he found (laughs) here and there i actually i don't know if he still does it or not but his wife reached out not long ago and said hey love the podcast blah 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 by the way i'm johnny mac's wife and i was like oh my gosh you know what's so weird is like double connections because i used to live with johnny mac and johnny mac's dad used to teach you guitar lessons yeah he was
3: my english lit teacher and guitar guitar teacher yeah it's so weird it is so
1: Anyway, Johnny Max Rad. I'm sure his wife's got to be, too. So.
3: Well, he does have a grocery store list collection, so.
1: I love it. (laughs) So Liddell said that they'd not been able to examine this piece in particular in person before because of COVID lockdowns. Mm -hmm. But when they finally got a chance to and they're looking closer, they discovered that it wasn't a copy of another piece. It was a new document, and Liddell said it's something quite different than anything that they'd seen before. It turned out that this was the ancient equivalent of a graduate school yearbook. Uh. The inscription is a list of friends who went through the Ephibate. Now, an Ephibus, in ancient Greece, was any male who had attained the age of puberty. And in Athens, it actually acquired a very technical sense, referring to a young man aged 18 to 20. From about 335 BCE, these men underwent two years of military training. And at the end of the first year, each would receive a sword and a shield from the state And at that stage, they would take the aphibic oath. Now, during the third century BCE, Aphibic service ceased to be compulsory and the duration was reduced to a year. It also became an institution for the wealthy classes only. But by the first century, foreigners were admitted and the curriculum was expanded to not just include military studies, but also philosophic and literary studies. Just a couple of years later, young men readying to become citizens of Athens were obligated to undergo the training. And that was designed to prepare them to defend their country, obey the laws, uphold its traditions, so on and so forth. So this is among the earliest evidence for non-citizens taking part in the ephebit in this period.
3: Did they sign the yearbook for each other? You know, like, see you next September. Uh, You'll (laughs) always be my BFF. How would you say that in ancient Greece?
1: Unclear. Mm. Some of the names, though, on the tablet are nicknames, such as Theogis for Theogenes and Dionysus for Dianosodoros. Okay. Dianosodoros. Yes.
3: So that's the ancient Greek equivalent of scooter.
1: kind of yeah but using these shortened names was super unusual according to the researchers and it likely indicates that the graduates had a real sense of camaraderie that they were buddies that they weren't just classmates that they were co-cadets and friends and cohorts
3: oh my god was this the first greek fraternity
1: you know i don't know that much about fraternities maybe that should be a topic According to Liddell, they believe the 31 names are a subset of the full class. So the full class would have been between like 100 and 200 students. But these guys were like a clique. And the inscriber, Akitos, son of Philopos, presents himself as kind of the central figure. So he's the cool kid. He's the one who's (laughs) inscribing these names into the stone. And many of the people mentioned on the tablet were part of the Athenian elite. So they really were the cool kids.
3: So it was like skull and bones.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: For the uh, ancient Greek world.
1: There's a detail at the top of the tablet, which is an oil amphora, which symbolizes athletic competition. Mm. The physical training was obviously a big part of this and preparing for Athenian citizenship. And they use the oil amphora as a symbol because the ephibs likely would have rubbed themselves with olive oil before training in the gymnasium, kind of like they did at the Olympics. Nice. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the inscription, it translates to of Caesar which refers to the emperor Tiberius Claudius Germanicus Caesar, the fourth ruler of the ancient Roman Empire from 41 to 54. The phrasing meaning that the inscription was made during his reign. That's right. The year 41. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) To even think that that's a real thing, that someone was out there making a yearbook Hmm. in 41. Now inscriptions from this period are relatively rare and it's not known where this list would have been displayed. It could have been like in a gymnasium where they practiced or it could have been more of a personal thing.
3: I imagine it would be hard to carry around once you were all oiled up though.
1: (laughs) Right. So maybe not the gym,
3: (laughs) maybe not the gym.
1: (laughs) This discovery represents an important new source of information about Athenian society in the mid-first century CE. That's according to the National Museum Scotland's principal curator, Margaret Maitland. Uh, She wrote in a blog post, this was a crucial period for Athens as it adapted to its place under the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire had just conquered that Greek peninsula in 146 BCE. So they were still kind of finding their way under the roman rule and it shows how the greeks were still clinging to their tradition despite that roman rule one of the articles that i read said whether any of the young men signed the yearbook with hags remains unconfirmed and i don't understand what that means so i assume that that's something i don't understand either about yearbooks or about the greeks
3: have a good summer
1: Oh, mm. oh, okay. Is that something that you really have to abbreviate, guys? I mean, could not you just write it out?
3: Not when you're chipping it into marble. That's true. It's much, much easier <laughs> to just abbreviate everything.
1: I got most of my information from I fucking love science, ancient origins, the independent, NPR, the Smithsonian, and... PenLive.com.
3: That's really fascinating and it makes me want to find that site where I can go and just read all of the translations that they have come come up with since they began this project. Where can I find that?
1: The Attic Inscriptions Online Project.
3: Alright, I'm going to go do that. And it would be awesome if you haven't had a chance to check out the new podcast, The Shallow End, to toodle over, give it a listen. We're excited about it.
1: Getting some great reviews so far. Thanks, y'all.
3: And you can find the link to listen at Podcast or in the show notes of this episode. We'll see you next time.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
3: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the
2: Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.